the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back with our conversation, Scott Cleland, my guest. Search and destroy why you can't trust Google, Inc. And uh, this new book uh, dealing with the topic of uh, Google and its long reach that seems to go well beyond uh, anything we could have even dreamt of um, when 1984 was written back in 1948. Um, Scott, you mentioned that beyond simply tracking our online activities, our churches, our, pay, our, our searches, our page hits, etc., etc., you said that they're also tracking so much more. Elaborate on that, if you would. Well, Big Brother in 1984 just listened and watched. And, um, you know, the, the advent of search really is, John uh, Tell said, it's a database of intentions. Basically, you can t- tell what somebody wants and seeks and where they, what they're really um, thinking that's important in their life is, is um, revealed through search and through some of the other products. You know, where you go on the web and, you know, where you spend your time relatively and, and all that. And so um, uh, they, they know everything about you. As I, as I said, that, you know, they, they, they're tracking everything you do so they know you better than yourself. And um, why is that a problem? And, well, that's a problem because all of that uber profile, that incredibly intimate uh, personal information, and, and I should step back here and say, as we know, there's not a listener out there. We know there's no one on this on this earth that is without sin, that is without something that they would rather that not be seen. And it can be the most minor thing that you're afraid of, you know, a neighbor finding out about something or a family member knowing about something, and you're not worried about anybody else. But everybody has a right to privacy, and everybody um, uh, needs privacy for security. So publicly you tell all your friends that you're a big fan of Fox News, and secretly at home you're watching MSNBC on the Internet. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's, and, and there's a ton of legitimate reasons why we want privacy. And so what is um, scary about Google is they just don't believe in privacy. But the thing I want to tell, you, uh, tell your listeners right now is, is that Google has this incredible profile that J. Edgar Hoover or any, the East German Stasi would have dreamed of having during the, uh, during the Cold War, or even any totalitarian, ter- totalitarian government today would dream having that profile on, uh, on citizens because they could then use it to influence them and control them. They, but that information that Google has could fall into the wrong hands in four different ways, and it's happened in all four. The first is it can fall into the hands of a rogue Google employee. And we already have an, an example of a uh, Google engineer stalking teenagers using the, the, the Google database. It could fall into the hands of a hacker. We know last year that the Chinese completely hacked the entire Google system and stole Google's entire password system. We know from last year um, uh, that uh, that they could fall in the hands of, of a spy agency. We know from the Washington Post front page that, um, uh, that Google cooperates with the National Security Agency. We know um, that, uh, because Google has warned us, that 
uh, law enforcement can get all this information without a subpoena because our laws have not kept up with the due process where, you know, in order to have your phone tapped, they have to go to a judge and get permission. They don't need that in order to get all the stuff from, from Google. Now, that can fall into the wrong hands, and that creates an increased danger for everybody. Well, and just ask Sony how problematic this can be. Absolutely. Well, just think about it. This Uber profile, could, you know, it creates a danger, increased danger of stalking, blackmail, theft, fraud, kidnapping, intimidation, harassment, or arrest. Now, in a free society, we don't want to have you know, um, you know citizens have a, a Orwellian Big Brother Inc. profile out there. It's not what a free country is about. You also made the comment, uh, Scott, that Google is wanting or is, or is attempting to or maybe has, has succeeded in some cases of capturing voice print and facial images, all of this, too. So if you're uh, uh, camming or you're doing Skype, I guess, or whatever, uh, they have the capability to capture all of that? Yes. Uh, you have, your voice is uh, like a fingerprint. It is um, unique to you. And uh, they collected um, a bunch of them without anybody's permission. When they offered 411, you know, that free uh, 411 oh, sure. phone service, that reason they were doing that, there were two reasons. They were, I believe they were connecting, collecting voice prints, but they were also collecting phenomes, uh, phonemes. They were trying to get the sounds so that they could improve their translation. So you have to realize that Google's always using users of lab rats, measuring them and testing them. And they, that's, they just view um, people as data and data to collect in order to improve their systems and improve their artificial intelligence. And then they also have face prints. You know, Picasso, they rearrange, they arrange your photos, but most everybody knows that you can identify people through facial recognition software. But it doesn't stop there. We know Google is investing in fingerprint technology. They would love to get into that as well. And we know they've invested in DNA marking technology, thinking into the future. If you really want to get uh, um, you know, a sense of all the things that Google can collect, I did a one-pager that people could find on the web called uh, Total Information Awareness Power. And if you bing it, you can, you can find it. But there in one page I list all of the things that uh, Google collects. And in my book as well, it lists many of the things that the Google collects, and it's just mind-boggling all the ways they can identify you. Now, uh, is there a URL for that, or should I just Google it to find it? Well, Bing, if you went to, um, uh, um, if you Bing Total Information Awareness Power, that's my one-pager. It'll probably come to my blog post, and you'll see there's a PDF there. Not surprisingly, but, uh, you're not recommending that we Google it. You Bing it. <laughs> uh, I wonder why I recommend it. I wonder why. I, when we come back, I want to talk a bit, too, about some of the things that we can do to circumvent uh, being a victim of this level of intrusiveness. You know, it, it's one thing, again, for a company to gather <coughs> data so that they can more accurately, you know, target their advertising, things of this sort. Okay, I, I get all of that. Uh, you know, demographics are very important in the ad game, as they say. But but the degree to which this can be used, and then you talk about surreptitious level in which, you know, with a government that is trustworthy and wholesome and would never do anything wrong toward its citizenry, this can be a, a, something that we would just never worry about. I don't know that a government of that sort has yet been invented. Let's take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Back to our conversation with Scott Cleland, a look at search and destroy why you can't trust Google Inc. Uh, from a practical standpoint, what does what does Google plan, in your opinion, Scott, to do with all of this information that they are gathering? I mean, you, you've outlined what can happen if it falls into the hands of rogue employees or it's readily hacked that could bring, you know, serious consequences, much as the folks at uh, Sony have been dealing with with the PlayStation hack of, you know, going on three weeks now. But what about from the standpoint of Google themselves. How are they profiting potentially, or do they plan to profit from gathering all this data? Well, we have to explore two different avenues. Um, one is kind of the business, and the other is the, uh, the political. Uh, from uh, a business, you have to realize they are the only uh, Fortune 1000 company with a uh, a political mission. You know, it's not their mission isn't to serve um, uh, customers or to help share owners or service share owners. It's to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So they say they want to change the world, and so um, and they also are not interested in monetizing things. They just want to solve the world's problems. So I call them techtopians, and uh, um, you know, as a uh, um, you really have to understand what they're all about. And, uh, you know, people wonder why am I so uh, alarmed by Google is, is I think they have lousy values. And I, I completely disagree with their values. The two main values they have is they don't believe in privacy. They believe in radical transparency. Um, they, you know, and what you see with the, with the um, radical transparency is that, that's what the um, what uh, they're trying to do in organizing all the world's information. It includes uh, um, all your private information. Now, the second half of that is is that um, they don't believe in property rights. They believe in redistributing everybody else's information property for free without their permission, and they're the ones that monetize it, and other people um, don't. And so. Um, when you put those two values together, and they're political values, where they believe in radical transparency over privacy, and they believe in um, redistributing other people's property without permission over um, a free market and property rights. When you get that, in the end, if you don't have privacy and property online, you are Google's surf. That is a, you know, that's my, my big political beef with, with Google is, uh, I, I don't think most Americans and most people around the world um, want to give up all their privacy and give up all their property rights. No, I would dare say not. Now, with all this said, as much as Google has become a, a daily habit for so many people around the world, uh, how do we respond? How do we fight back to all of this? Well, um, this is something where you know my my solution in the book is relatively straightforward and, and simple. That doesn't mean it'll be easy. Um, uh, basically, if Google was as accountable and as transparent as they expect everybody else to be, and if they just simply respected uh, people, property, and, and the rule of law, I don't think uh, anybody would have major problems with them. Basically, Google is a notorious scoff law. They're a serial offender of, of privacy, property, and, uh, and and the rule of law. And uh, as you probably have heard, their don't be evil, um, you know, credo. Uh, it, it's a joke. It's the lowest ethical standard ever devised. It basically allows anything short of evil. And what um, what um, when you look at uh, how Google behaves, and you compare it to the Judeo-Christian ethic, and of of the Golden Rule, um, they 
regularly treat people the way they would never want to be treated. They treat people like, you know, data and like lab rats that are to be tested and tracked and, and, and manipulated. And so, um, you know, a big, big problem with Google and trying to hit back is the fact that they're so unethical. But now getting back to what can be done about it. Um, people need to be aware that Google is, uh, um, you know, they've learned all the benefits, and there are tremendous benefits. I am not, uh, you know, against Google or think Google is evil. I think they're unethical and untrustworthy, and that people need to understand that there are great costs that go along with with the benefits. But basically, it's a law enforcement problem. Unfortunately, uh, um, uh, three on three continents, they're being investigated for antitrust. I believe their monopoly power will be reined in. Um, many countries are. are are trying to rein them in on privacy. And I think in the U.S. we're going to pass both do not track legislation and comprehensive privacy legislation. And that's probably what the most important thing to your listeners is that do not track legislation gets passed relatively quickly. In the meanwhile, we do have alternatives out there. I'm thinking of browsers like Firefox. Well, interesting, careful, Firefox, Uh um, uh, 90% of the money that Firefox gets came from Google. Huh, huh. Yeah, you didn't know that. They're basically, the whole um, uh, Mozilla Foundation is funded through. Now, to be fair to Mozilla, Mozilla and Firefox have been much better than Google about uh, um, do not track and about privacy concerns. So Firefox has been a good browser, certainly better than Chrome, but people should remember that uh, Chrome, or that, uh, I'm sorry, that Firefox has long been backed by Google. And so um, there is a question mark there. All right, you mentioned Bing earlier. Bing, of course, nothing to do with the Cherry or Crosby, is associated with Microsoft. And a lot of people look at Microsoft as another pretty huge big brother. Well, um, you know, Microsoft has a different model. And, uh, you know, Microsoft and Apple, where Google maligns them and and other people look at them now and and are worried, um, users have to remember that users and customers actually pay these companies, like Apple and Microsoft, um, they get paid directly by the people they serve. And that is completely different than um, than Google. Google claims to work for users, but it doesn't. It makes all of its 30 billion monopoly money in, uh, you know, from advertisers. And my one of my largest beefs with um, with Google is not that they advertise. Advertising is um, a perfectly legitimate uh, business. That's how um, your radio station uh, um, makes a living. But problem with Google is they're not forthright, they are not honest, they do fairly represent what they do. They represent that they're only interested in users when they work for, they have a conflict of interest and they work for um, for advertisers. And so um, a lot of what needs to be done with Google is just making sure they forthrightly represent themselves to the public so that people know that, you know, they can't trust them like they thought they could try to trust them. Wow. And in terms of the reining in, as you say, that may be done by legislation in the end, how complete, how effective do you think that will be, or do we really have to really protect it and watch it ourselves? Well, I definitely think we need to watch it and protect ourselves. And, I, and I'm, I'm an optimist in the sense that I think, you know, the democratic system, a free market system with, uh, um, uh, with law enforcement and with a vigilant populace, that most of the Google problem can be addressed. But people should realize it's going to take a long time. And, um, uh, and Google is a serial scofflaw. They are very clever about how they um, they pat people on the head and say, oh, we care about privacy, we care about security, we care about property, move along, there's nothing to see here. And then they go on and do what they were going to do before. And so the law enforcement challenge going forward is going to require extreme 
extremely vigilant, repeat, repeat, repeat law enforcement from um, from the government on on, you know, on all fronts. Because uh, you know, Google as a culture has a scofflaw culture. They think they're right. They think their values are right. To give the, your listeners an example of their political values in that action is when WikiLeaks, Julian Assange released all those um, uh, top secret cables and confidential information and and you know uh, information on confidential informants for law enforcement and for our intelligence services. They put tremendous lives at risk and the national security at risk tremendously. Now publications like the Post or New York Times or whatever, they um, were careful about what they released. Some people may quibble they released too much, but they redacted a lot of information and they didn't release actual documents. Now, um, uh, when uh, companies uh, decided they didn't want to be associated, like eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, they decided to put um, a a, a 10-foot pole between them and Julian Assange. They didn't want to be associated with that guy at all. He's a criminal and uh, a despicable criminal. And, uh, but look what Google did. Google um, uh, basically, their senior management got together, according to um, Schmidt, and they decided they were going to make all those cables and index them so they'd be universally accessible to the world, to all the world's bad actors. So that top secret information, that, those confidential informants, that private information on citizens is now indexable by al-Qaeda, by terrorists, by hackers, by creeps. It is an unbelievably irresponsible thing that Google has done. But that's because their technology, or their philosophy, political philosophy, is for radical transparency over privacy and redistributing whatever property they find to everybody. That's their techtopian ideal. And I think it should very much scare and trouble people. Information on the web, bing it. Total Information Awareness Power, Total Information Awareness Power, the book called Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc., available through Amazon.com or uh, also information through Scott's website, Scott Cleland, C-L-E-L-A-N-D, Cleland.com. Scott, thanks for the time and the education. Wow. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. At 36 years old, most physicians are just getting up to serious full speed in their medical careers, carving out a niche, perhaps making a name for themselves, and doing what they are passionate about, what they train so hard for, healing patients and making their physical lives better. But at the age of 36, Yale and Stanford University graduate and trained neurosurgeon Dr. Paul Kalanithi His focus in life suddenly shifted from a focus of building a career and building a family to questions about his own mortality, having been diagnosed, unexpectedly so, with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. Through the process of dealing with this, many questions were raised. One of the issues that Paul has left as a gift for not only his own family, but frankly for all of us, that at one time or another, at some point in life, we'll face questions of our own mortality, is a gift left behind of his experiences, his observations, his feelings, detailed in a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. Joining me now is Dr. Kalanithi's wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, who, by the way, is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. And Dr. Lucy, great to have you on the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
You know, your story reads like one of those amazing love affairs. The two of you, I believe, met uh, when you were first-year medical students back at Yale University, and you followed your lives and careers and marriage to uh, wind up here on the West Coast and finishing up your studies at Stanford University. And by all accounts, this was sort of, um, well, what do we call it, a a fairy book kind of a relationship, wasn't it? Um. Yeah, in my mind, um, uh, I feel so lucky to have been married to Paul. And it's it's funny because you describe that sequence of events. And I look back and, you know, a year ago, three years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he was 36. Two years ago, we were having our baby shower. A year ago, he had just died. And now his book is out and it's being translated into almost 40 languages and it's just like the course of things that you just never know what's going to happen in your life and so looking back over those years you know meeting him 13 years ago and then up until now when he's not with us but he's written this book and we have a daughter growing it's um it's really um you know it's life this book let's talk about some of his motivations first off for the benefit of listeners put some things in perspective for us so as we mentioned um he had wrapped up his studies at stanford university um and was beginning literally beginning his career as a neurosurgeon what led to the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer so he was diagnosed in may of 2013 and starting around christmas the year before, he'd started to develop some back pain that was kind of unexplained. And then in between Christmas and the spring of the next year, he started losing weight, um, you know, without really knowing why. And then he started to have night sweats and a cough. And it's funny because we were both doctors, so we were kind of worried about these symptoms. But at the same time, he was working as a um, neurosurgery resident, a chief resident at Stanford. And, you know, he was on his feet for 14 hours a day and doing brain surgery. And, you know, he would skip lunch or eat a Snickers bar for lunch. And so to have some of those aches and to lose a bit of weight when you're working that hard, initially it, we didn't, we didn't realize what it was. And then finally, um, we had the, the diagnosis that he had metastatic cancer and he probably only had a few years to live. And so, at that point, the, the book he wrote and the um, task of that time was to try to make sense of, um, as, a, as a young doctor and as a lover of literature who had also studied philosophy, like how you put together all you know intellectually and philosophically about mortality and then facing it in a real and emotional way, um, what do you do with that? And so he wrote this book as a way to make sense of it and to share it with readers. It's interesting because your experience, I think, tracks what most of us would think at that age. Well, this certainly can't be anything serious. I mean, maybe a little right. bit worn out, needs perhaps some some time off, uh, you know, maybe a little bit on the lethargic side because of working such long hours. I mean, this is the experience of every uh, physician, to be sure. And I think no one, even with the both of you, with backgrounds in medicine from very prestigious schools, I would imagine would have thought that this could have been anything more severe than just kind of feeling under the weather right it's just so rare um uh, exactly and then you know a, a little while before the diagnosis we started to um suspect it and that was when he um you know uh, really started getting it checked out and then soon the diagnosis came lucy what was this like for you when the diagnosis came 
you're both physicians, so you understand not only all of the terminology, but the ramifications of the terminology. And you're, you're suddenly, you, you have to have felt, at least in those initial moments, like, number one, this can't be happening. And number two, how is this possible? You guys are just getting your careers and, and lives together started. You haven't even begun to, to, to start your own family. And suddenly this diagnosis, it's not just lung cancer, it's stage four lung right. cancer. What was your reaction right. like? Yeah, you're summing it up pretty well. Um, it's It was this really profound and painful moment where um, we had, we Paul got admitted to Stanford Hospital um, to get, you know, expedited workup and, and quick investigation of what was going on. And he went down to the CT scanner and then he was wheeled back into the hospital room and no one was in the room. The two of us were in the room. And because he was a physician at Stanford, he went over to the computer and he typed his own name in and he pulled up the CAT scan images. And so he describes this at the beginning of the book, the feeling of looking through those pictures of, you know, somebody's organs and seeing cancer throughout the lungs and the bones and knowing it's your own body that you're looking at. And so he's standing there with me, his wife, um, and we just sort of, nobody was giving us the news in like a little kind, gentle dribble. It was like the two of us together looking at our own eyes and then being doctors, we knew that this was a terminal illness. So it just sort of hit us all, hit us all at once. Um, and then luckily, I think we skipped over the phase of thinking, why me, how could this happen? Um, you know, why us? Because we've seen it happen to so many people, this kind of thing happened to so many people. Um, you know, he was a brain surgeon and so he was familiar with head trauma and aneurysms and tumors. And then the immediate thing we both thought was, you know, now it's our turn, it's our turn to enter into this, um, this kind of challenging experience. And what a curiosity that I think we all tend to ask those sorts of questions uh, having dealt with this uh, issue of uh, cancer myself in my own life uh, the initial question of why me i think is is very normal it's very human but then it maybe even begs a bigger question why not me i mean it happens oh, that's right so exactly paul wrote, exactly paul wrote that in the book and said yeah the answer would be why not me you know so once you get over the, the initial shock, was there, did you go through feelings of anger, that, that sense of, of this, this young relationship, you'd known each other uh, barely a decade at that point, that, that all of a sudden this the love of your life was going to be ripped from you? I mean, certainly the, the seriousness of the fact that the cancer had metastasized was already at stage four at the point of the diagnosis. I mean, you had to have known that the clock was going to be ticking very soon. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, that's right. We didn't feel particularly angry. I think for me, the main emotions I had were, um, you know, painful emotions like sadness and anxiety. Um, and then sort of the, the real task, we were really in love. We really knew how much we were going to need each other and wanted to take care of each other. And then, you know, we, we certainly had these um, like real disorientation and a shift in his identity, you know, like you were describing. He, Paul, um, as a young neurosurgeon, had this whole career mapped out in his mind about being a neurosurgeon and a scientist and maybe a writer down the line because he loved literature and writing. But suddenly, with only a few years left, um, your whole identity just changes completely and you, you have to make sense of a whole new world and set of circumstances. And I think other people who are facing a serious or terminal illness can relate to that 
idea. Um, and so writing ultimately became the, the big purpose for him, the way for him to cope and the way for him to communicate and feel connected and uh, purposeful. And there are layers of complexity here because not only is there the sense of, okay, time is suddenly short. We thought we had our whole lives together. Suddenly there's now a, an expiration date that we can see. So you have to contend with the implications of that on your relationship and outlook on life. And then you, you point out something I think that, that uh, perhaps few of us think about that physicians have to deal with, and that is that you might spend a career, a lifetime uh, caring for patients, and you're used to the physician patient relationship, uh, you are the one who's giving the the diagnosis or prescribing the treatment or in your husband Paul's case, uh, you know, performing the surgery on the patient and suddenly the roles have been significantly switched. He goes from being Dr. Paul, the physician, to patient Paul. And as much as I would imagine, some might say, well, gee, uh, all of the advantages because of his medical training and background, there's things that he will understand and be able to comprehend that, that the un, uh, uninitiated, uh, you know, average patient out there who's, who's, you know, spent no more time in the medical journals than, you know, occasionally happening on WebMD has no clue of what's transpiring. But I would imagine there are ways in which perhaps, Lucy, his background in medicine and the fact that he's suddenly gone from being physician Paul to patient Paul must have had some ups and some downs to it. Yes, that's right. Just as far as the experience of being doctors, it was sort of the best and worst thing um, for us because you're exactly right. We knew we knew how to use the medical system and we understood what was happening and we knew the prognosis, which is, you know, really painful but helpful at the same time. It helped us make decisions like whether or not to have a baby. And then I, as his caregiver, knew all the medications and how to use them and what the side effects were. I mean, there were a lot of stresses that many families have that our knowledge helps us um, get around, which I'm really grateful for. And then another thing I'm really grateful for is the other thing you just asked about, which is switching from the experience of being a doctor to the experience of being a patient, being on the other side of that relationship. So for both of us as doctors, um, it gave me such a depth of understanding of the degree to which, even if you have the knowledge, um, the, the um, existential and um, uh, experiential and care and empathy that all, the, all that stuff that your doctor provides you, we were so hungry for it. And it just helped really enrich my understanding of how deep and supportive that relationship can be um, if you're lucky. It was um, Paul's dependence on his doctor was much more than I would have expected from a young male neurosurgeon, you know, but he, he really was emotionally dependent on his doctor in a way that I thought was really profound and interesting to see. And it's helped shape my own own practice as a doctor and understanding of that relationship. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi with us today. We're talking about a new book just newly released by Random House called When Breath Becomes Air. It is a New York Times bestseller written by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi. And we're talking about their experiences following the diagnosis at the age of 36 of stage four lung cancer. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest today. She is Dr. Lucy Colonithi. Her husband, Paul, the author of a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. This is a New York Times best-selling book that details the observations and life experiences and in many ways, I think, sets down a legacy by her husband, Dr. Paul Colonithi, as he was diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer at the very young age of 36 and, and, and very new into his career as a physician. Let's talk about his decision to start journaling and, and begin compiling what eventually would become When Breath Becomes Air. You mentioned about his, his background and love for literature. Uh, was this one of those bucket list types of things, Lucy, where he, he had a book in him that had to come out, or was there, was there more to it than this? Was it in part maybe coping with the day-to-day experience of going through chemotherapy and all that attends to a stage four um, cancer diagnosis, along with wanting to, I, I would imagine, leave a legacy behind for you and eventually your daughter? Um, yes, exactly. All of those things. It's wild because if you asked him when he was a teenager what he'd be when he grew up, he definitely would have said, I'm going to be a writer. And then he surprised himself by going into medicine. He studied literature and philosophy and then decided to come into medicine because he was so interested in the question of what makes us human and how do we make sense of building meaning in our lives despite the fact that we will all die. And so he was trying to get at that big question by um, studying literature and then ultimately becoming a neurosurgeon and thinking about neuroscience. Um, and uh, then the writing of the book, it's, it was so fortuitous and amazing the way it happened. He became, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when he was 36, just starting his neurosurgical career. And then he wrote a little essay called How Long Have I Got Left that um, he sent it to a friend for comments. And it was almost like a little journal essay about coping with uncertainty and making sense of um you know, how I, I know I'm dying, but even still, I don't know how much time I have left. And um, his friend forwarded it straight to the op-ed desk at the New York Times, and they published it almost verbatim. And Paul had this huge response from it where for a while he was getting an email a minute, um, just a real um, positive experience hearing from doctors and patients. And ultimately, quickly from that essay came a book deal. Mm. Um, uh, and then it was sort of a... It was a journal, like you described. He was writing the manuscript to help him cope in real time. Very intimate. He wrote down things that were more intimate than he could say out loud to me. So me reading the manuscript as he was writing, it was actually a really powerful part of what was happening in our marriage as he was ill. And then he knew that it would be a legacy for our daughter. And his real purpose was um, not just a journal or a private document, but um, really helping bring the reader into what it feels like to face mortality um, in a very personal way. And at the same time, he's reflecting back on philosophy and literature and his experiences in medicine. So it's sort of a mix of his whole, um, everything he's learned to that point, and he's trying to he's trying to give it as a gift or something to share. What's amazing about this is, is you get the sense, perhaps, that he's working through a lot of the big questions that, quite frankly, all of us will eventually have to work through or at least be confronted by. It, it, it might be uh, debatable as to how many people work through it. I, I, I think that perhaps some people work their way through the entire of life, and, and as they begin to face uh, the, the end chapter, don't really think through uh, 
has my life been meaningful and 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 how do we make uh, a sense of, of of meaning and purpose in life even in the face of things that we cannot control and in some cases are are very unwelcome at least early on and that is death like in the case of, of Paul who was facing his mortality at an age probably uh, a third of what is is normal for most people these days based on longevity tables and then too to leave that that experience, those observations, those feelings behind in a in a permanent document that not only would share his own insights into this question of what does all of this mean, but then too to leave that behind as a gift for you and for your daughter. As you read through the journal in preparation for bringing this book to publication, were there things that surprised you? Um. Uh, kind of. So, I, as I mentioned, he was writing it, um, sort of a central piece of the last year of his life was the experience of writing the book. And, and I was really helping, you know, we timed his um, chemo around it and we adjusted his medication so he could concentrate or sit for long periods of time. You know, the, the process of um, being ill with cancer, as you know, is, um, isn't easy. And he's trying to write during that. And so, as he was writing, I was reading, you know, what was coming out on the page about his experience. And there are a couple different things. Like he wrote about a rocky patch we went through in our marriage. He writes about that right at the beginning of the book. And then um, he writes about how we wrestled with the decision of whether we should have a baby despite his illness. And, um, you know, he was writing about these really intimate things. And I thought, you know, should I, should I ask him to tone it down or take them out or whatever. And then I was like, you know, if I were a reader, those are the parts I would love. I would love the parts that were real and authentic. And the book is quite, intimate and detailed and raw um and i think that's partly why people are responding to it sort of unflinching and really honest and um and it's his story i i wasn't going to ask him to change his story so it did surprise me how um uh sort of intimate the types of intimate things he shared but i actually think that was a really wise decision it turned out to be really positive including for me um you know it's it, is helping me have intimate conversations with other people based on what Paul shared about our experience. Well, in so many ways, it is a gift that many people, quite frankly, Lucy, will never experience. Uh, they will meet, fall in love, build a family, have a relationship, spend a lifetime together, and then once death takes one of the two uh, individuals in that marriage relationship, there are a lot of memories left behind. There are some wonderful photographs, but to have a permanent document uh, that details the thought process and observations and life experiences that that can go on even to serve as a guide for your daughter in years to come is is an incredibly rare and I think precious gift. And the other thing too that you talk about in the um, um, the epilogue to this new book, which again for listeners is When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House, uh, written by Dr. Paul Catalani. Uh, for you in in this process, you talk about much of what you've learned in terms of going through grief, what that means, how that nobody can really dictate to you how to grieve or what that process looks like or the timetable. And the other thing that you said that that really struck me, you talk about this notion and you at one point quote C.S. Lewis, that death in and of itself in a relationship is not the end. And so often a lot of people say, well, now that my husband is gone, my wife is gone, it's over. And it the reality is it's not it's not the end it's just a different phase of love uh, elaborate on that oh, I love that quote so much he, um, C.S. Lewis writes that in um, A Grief Observed and he, he says exactly that bereavement is not the truncation of married love but one of its regular phases and that 
I just gasped as I read it because I felt that way. I felt after Paul died, I still love him just the same way I loved him. Even if I get remarried in the future, I will still love Paul forever. You know, he's still, um, you know, part of my family and my life experience. And then the, um, the, process of shepherding his manuscript for the book when breath becomes air into the real book and then helping random house choose the cover and writing the epilogue about how paul died and reflecting on paul those experiences feel they literally make me feel as if paul and i are still a team i'm still working on this book and like i'm still doing something to help paul live out his life it's really interesting it's um i knew i would feel sad and anxious after he died and i have but i didn't realize that those same feelings of love and um commitment would continue just the same and they have i wrote a i wrote an essay in the new york times called my marriage didn't end when i became a widow and it's about it's about that exact idea and i think i've had a lot of people tell me that they can relate to that idea about grief your your young daughter was too young to to really perhaps remember much about her father. But as she grows older and goes from being a little girl into a young lady, uh, this this is a book that can serve and guide her well, isn't it? I hope so. It's really my prized possession, and I'm I'm I can't wait until she can read it. Um. The takeaway for for listeners, and we've talked about a lot of the topics here today, Lucy, uh, gone from the shock of a terminal diagnosis at a young age to what it means in terms of the impact on a relationship to trying to think through uh, suddenly facing these questions of eternity at a very early age or a young age, and then uh, wrestling with the questions of meaning of life and the legacy that we would hope to leave behind, the impact of our of our presence, so to speak, having been here on earth in in terms of the big takeaway if there's any one thing that you would hope the readers can really extract from paul's book what would it be you know the book he's writing it as you know from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a lover of literature and a terminally ill man and he's talking about facing mortality and the thing he wanted to share is you know as you as you're dying and as you're living um how do you wrestle with your own values and then create a life that's built around those values and that's truly meaningful? Um, uh, you know, and it's, <laughs> I keep being afraid, you know, people will ask me, so what, so what is the meaning of life? And what does When Rescue Comes There say about that? And I think partly it's the struggle to find meaning that is the meaning. Um, and that's sort of what he gets deep into. Those are ultimately questions, of course, that we can only answer for ourselves. But I I think what's remarkable about this book and both his approach and the effort that you've made in in making his dream as a published author uh, come to fruition and leaving that legacy behind, not just for yourself and your daughter, but for all of us, and that is to also paint a picture. We we often hear, especially at at, uh, eulogies, about how well somebody lived and what a class act that they were in life, and yet it is rare that we get a glimpse into uh, the process of how well somebody can die, and what it means to to die with grace, and and what that picture looks like. That's a part of life that that you know we don't understand a lot about. We spend uh, oftentimes a lot of energy in trying to avoid that, and yet learning how to to make the the, the final moments of life have as much significance and value, and leave behind as much legacy 
legacy of the end, as we do throughout the years on Earth, I think is so incredibly important and what makes this particular book so special and so unique. The book, again, is called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. It is the story of Dr. Paul Catalani, and we appreciate, uh, Dr. Lucy, you spending some time with us today to share your story. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll remind listeners, the book is available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on the website for Dr. Paul Catalani. Let me spell the name for you. It's Paul, P-A-U-L-K-A-L-A-N-I-T-H-I. And if you just Google When Breath Becomes Air, you'll be able to find the website. Our thanks again to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.